feasted this morning as we have gathered in your name. The most awesome, powerful, wonderful, and beautiful name to worship you, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We have gathered as the body of Christ to worship you. Not just to, to do it, Lord, but, but because we have a heart for worship, to corporately gather as one church and just worship you in spirit and in truth without the distraction of what this world brings. Lord, I pray that hearts would be touched today, that we would continue to worship you through prayer, through commitment, through the teaching of your word. Lord, continue to unveil the mysteries of your will to us this morning. Pray for Pastor John Desiderio as he preaches this morning. Give him boldness and strength and courage to preach your word. And Lord, let it, let it penetrate our hearts. Provoke thought and prayer this week as we prepare our hearts for the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Lord, it's in that mighty name, the mighty name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Hey, thank you, Faith. You may be seated. Pastor Rossetti said there might be technical difficulties yet to come. I know he was referring to me. I, uh, I am a technical difficulty. Through the entire first service, I was taking off my glasses and scraping them against the microphone. I'm going to try not to do that. But if I do, feel free to point it out as we go along. So it is Palm Sunday, and we are celebrating the triumphal entry of our king into Jerusalem as we look forward to the crucifixion and then, of course, ultimately the resurrection of our king. You ever think to yourself, why is it called the triumphal entry if he was going to be crucified? We're gonna answer that today. But before we do, something I found that is unique to me in the first service. Has anyone here ever met a real live king and, shake, and had the chance to shake their hand? wow, I am still the only one at this church who has met a real live king. It's probably not that impressive. That's probably why. But this is the king I met. This fine-looking gentleman with all the medals on his jacket there is King Gustav. I know. I can hear the excitement in the crowd. King Gustav? You met King Gustav, John. You are, you are something. Well, anyway, when I was 10 years old, 1976, my elementary school teacher said, we have been selected to meet King Gustav as he comes to our community to celebrate Gustafness, whatever you know, they celebrate. And we thought, oh, a European king. Yes, a king from Europe. We thought England must be the king of England. Well, there was no king of England, so we didn't luck out there. Anybody know? This is for, it, not you in the back. This is for 10 points, and, and Pastor Rossetti, who knows all the kings of Egypt, cannot participate in this. <laughs> Anybody know what country King Gustav was the king of? What? Oh, what are you, book readers? Are you? Oh, stop it. Stop it. All right, his shoulder has a flag of Sweden. Um, yes, he is the king of Sweden. And you can see with all the military medals on his jacket, no doubt from the great meatball wars with Italy, I'm assuming. I don't know. I, I'm, that's, what, that's what I could guess. But anyway, it is indeed the king of Sweden. So as a 10-year-old boy, I was going to get the chance to shake his hand. So I thought to myself, well, I better brush up on my Swedish because I knew very little at the age of 10. Knew very little English at the age of 10, apparently. <laughs> so as any smart child would be, I, uh, I tuned to a very exciting show, The Muppets. <laughs> I thought, well, I'm going to greet this guy in true Swedish fashion. So I did. Hingy bingy, welcome to America. Hingy was how I greeted him. I didn't do that, but anyway, but the, it is true that I did get to meet the king of Sweden, and 
Luckily, I didn't greet him with the Swedish chef's vocabulary, but it's exciting to meet a king. And this guy came with a red carpet and a band playing and people lining up, clapping and cheering for him. But obviously, we're going to look at the coming of our king this morning, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And he did not come riding on a horse. He did not come looking for pomp and circumstances, though there was some for him. But he came as a humble servant. And it's good to remind ourselves of that this morning. So go with me to a word and prayer, and then we'll get into our message for this morning. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you that we do have a beautiful king in Lord Jesus. I thank you that he came, died, was resurrected, and is the king of our lives. And we ask you to be with us this morning as we worship him through the study of your word. Amen. All right. So I'm going to take the triumphal passage out of the, the book of Luke, though it is in all four Gospels, and there's little tidbits in each Gospel that, that I'll mention that may not be in this particular passage, but Luke 19, if you want to turn in your Bibles, if not, we'll have it projected up on the screen. So when he, Jesus, approached Bethpage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those, so those who were went, went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. So this is the triumphal entry and the getting of the baby donkey. And one thing we always point out that is very important as this donkey has never been ridden. Uh, but more importantly, I like to point out here that Jesus didn't want to enter Jerusalem on a horse because a horse would symbolize a conquering king militarily. A donkey symbolized a king coming in peace. So Jesus clearly wanted to represent the king coming in peace because Jesus, his entire intention was to bring peace between God and man. His intention was not to throw off the fetters of Rome and institute into Israel freedom from Rome. He had no intention of doing that. However, the crowd was yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save now, save now. They didn't want to be saved from their sin, most of them, but they did want to be saved from Rome. So that is why he comes on a colt, a baby young donkey. But there's other things I want to point out in the getting of the donkey and that is that he goes and tells his disciples, just go into town and you'll find a donkey there and just tell the owner, I have need of it. And he'll give it to you. So I, I, I often wonder, you know, did the disciples sometimes think that they were the only ones who believed in Jesus? And I think sometimes they had that isolated feeling that they were the only ones who were really following this man because every time he seemed to get a following, it would seem like days later or a short while later, those very people who praised him were against him or walking away from him because he said something that was hard and difficult. But it's important here, church, to know that Jesus had others who were serving him throughout Jerusalem, throughout Israel, other than the 12 or the 120 or the 100 and whatever, there were others that everybody didn't know about. And one of them was the owner of this donkey. And I want to point out here, church, that you are not alone. And I, I love this verse from Acts chapter 17. And you can use this verse, verses in many theological aspects. But let's read it. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind, listen to this, 
to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. We all believe in the sovereignty of God, and it is meticulous. It is extreme. The sovereignty of God has placed you at your appointed time in your appointed place. It's not a surprise to God that you are here. It's not a surprise to God that you were born or live, whether you were born or not, in the United States of America. It is not a surprise to God that you live here now. He, in eternity past, has determined these things and appointed you to be here. Just like he appointed the owner of the donkey to be at that place at that time. Why do I say this? Well, yes, you are not alone. I was talking to Bert, one of our first service goers this morning, and I told an earlier story about when I went to Switzerland and we were on this, this tram car going up to the top of a, a mountain in Switzerland. There was only three of us, my wife and, and, and this other gentleman. And we started to talk and right away from the conversation we were having, we immediately said, are you a believer? And he said, yes, I am. Halfway around the world, we identified, yes, there, is, there are believers in Switzerland. We knew it, but we had camaraderie there. We were not alone. And Bert was telling me when he was in Vietnam, you know, he met somebody and they started talking and right away he knew that that person was a believer in Christ and they had fellowship and camaraderie halfway around the world. We are not alone. But more importantly, church, when I say that we are not alone, I want to point out here that we have others here doing God's will, but you are destined to do God's will. You are determined to do God's will. You have been given an appointed time and an appointed habitation so that you may give your donkey when the Lord needs it. What did they say? What did the owner say when the disciples of Jesus came and said, the master needs your donkey, the Lord needs your donkey? He said, take it. Take the donkey. I'm going to whisper now. Take the donkey. That's what he said. He was willing to just give the donkey as needed. Hand it over. Because at his appointed time, he fulfilled what the Lord needed. So I say that to say this to you, church. Why has the Lord put you where you are? Why does the Lord bring people in your life who he brings into your life? Are you willing to give your donkey when it's asked for? Well, John, what do you mean? I don't have a donkey. Well, all right. Let's just say, are you willing to give of your goods, of your things, of your life, when someone comes to you and said, the Lord has need of it? Are you? Church, do you believe that we live in one of the wealthiest, still one of the wealthiest nations in the world? Yes, even though hard times are at our doorsteps. Do you believe that you have material goods that a lot of the world doesn't have? Yes. Do you have a warm place to live? Do you have food on the table? We have all these wonderful things. And what do we need to keep in mind, church? Deuteronomy chapter 8. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have, listen to this, church, when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Church, that is a message for us today. When our houses are full, when we have everything we need and we're so wealthy, we're fighting over things that have no eternal significance. God is saying to us, don't forget that I brought you out of slavery, that I brought you from life to death, that I brought you from sin to forgiveness. And that's more important than anything you own. And not only that, I have appointed your time and where you should live. So allow me to use you as you remember in faithfulness what I've done. 
He goes on to say in Deuteronomy, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Oh, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and might have gotten me this wealth. You may not say that in your heart or in your mind, but we do say that. Because when we're about to lose our wealth, what do we do? We scramble as though it was in our control, as though it was in our power, and we try to figure out what we're going to do to retain our wealth or to grow our wealth, and we get all tense and we get all nervous. We very rarely have the attitude during times of difficulty that God owns everything, and when he asks for it, it is our duty and obligation to give it to him. So I think that's a very valuable lesson we can learn from the owner of the donkey. I don't know the circumstance of that man, but he was wealthy enough to have a, an adult donkey and a, and a baby donkey. And when it was asked for, he said, take it. It's yours. Lord, use it. That's the attitude we should have. But let's get into the donkey. The humble beast of burden that represents Jesus Christ. And I asked this morning, how many of you are in small groups this morning? Uh, small groups for Easter. All right. We literally have over a quarter of our church involved in Easter small groups, which is absolutely wonderful. And you've been studying these things if you're in a small group. The reason I ask that if you're not in a small group and you feel like you're not connecting the church, please try to get into these things as we offer them. But we've been looking at things like, what does the donkey represent in the triumphal entry? Well, obviously, the obvious things are that he's a humble beast of burden. And we get that from Matthew 21. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And in Zechariah, this is the very prophecy that Jesus is fulfilling. Zechariah chapter 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humbled and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. First of all, Jesus did that as a fulfillment of prophecy to come in as an offerer of peace, not as a military victor. He came in humility. He didn't come with medals on his chest or royal robes. Instead, he came on a donkey. Humility. Having given up in Philippians chapter 2, the outward glory of God, which he did not feel that he needed to retain and grasp, and he came to earth and he put on the flesh of sinful man. Not that he was sinful, he sinned not once, but he put on the appearance, the flesh of a sinful man. He did not put on the flesh of Adam, which reflected the glory of God and its brilliance. No, he put on bodies that look like you and I. Sinful man. What an insult to the king of glory to have to don such an outfit. But that is what he did in his humility to come and offer peace because he had to be fully man and fully God in order to die for you and for me. Because remember, Jesus Christ didn't ride that donkey and come in only as a king. He rode that donkey and came in as a sacrificial lamb. And that is how he would bring peace and victory to man. Beast of burden. A donkey is a beast of burden. And surely there's symbolism there that Jesus himself was a carrier of our burden, a carrier of our sin, just like a donkey would carry the weight of things that needed to be transported from here to there. Jesus Christ became a beast of burden, and that's not an insulting name, but in the context, he became the bearer, the carrier. We put on his back, we put on his shoulders, sin. And he became a beast of our burden, and he paid for that burden, that whosoever believeth in him no longer has to carry that burden because of our glorious king. But there's another thing this donkey represents. And I, I don't know if you've considered this, but it 
also represented a stubborn attitude. When we say stubborn as a, no, we don't say donkey. What are you people? Stubborn as a mule, which we say is a donkey, right? We don't know the difference. We're not biologists, right? So we say stubborn as a mule, which we liken to as a donkey. And what do we mean by that? When a donkey has its mind on doing something, it does it. When it says, I'm not going to move, that's not going to move. You can beat me as much as you want. I'm not going to move because I'm not ready to move. Stubbornness, stick-to-itness in a bad way. But Jesus had the attitude of a mule in the fact that nothing was going to push him away from what he came here to do. Nothing was going to cause him to move from the left to the right. The Lord God has opened my ear. These are the words in Isaiah 50. And I was not disobedient. These are the words of the Messiah prophesied through Isaiah. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me, and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting, for the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed." The Lord had a stubbornness of a mule when he came to this earth to die for our sins. No matter how many pieces of hair they ripped from his beard, no matter how many crowns of, 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 of horrible thorns that pierced his brow, no matter how many stripes they gave his back, no matter how much anguish he experienced in the garden, he would not be moved to the left or the right. He would stay on the path. What's that path, church? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. His eyes were fixed on the joy set before him beyond that cross as he bore the burden of your sin and my sin and paid for it and became the king of heaven and earth No one could move him from that path. But I want to point out to you maybe a little different perspective you haven't considered that the donkey also represents you and I, church. Now, when the Lord brings you, oh, this is, and this is interesting from Exodus in Exodus 13. And I find that very few people are aware of these Exodus 13 passages. So it may be an eye-opener to you, but it may not be. But let's see. Now, when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite, as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you, you shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb and the first offspring of every beast that you own. The males belong to the Lord. Now, listen to this. But every first offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. But if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So it shall serve as a sign on your hand and as on your phylacteries on your forehead. For with a powerful hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. The donkey is particularly pointed out out of all the beasts that the Male donkey, the first male donkey, firstborn, will be redeemed with a lamb. This is prophetic and significant, church. That's not a mistake that God pulls out the donkey and names it specifically. So this donkey that Jesus sat on was most likely a redeemed donkey. Goes on. This is what we read back in Luke as we get back there. Go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. So this redeemed donkey is now loosed. It is now set free. Redeemed and set free. And the donkey receives a king. They brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. Redeemed, set free, the king is on the donkey that has never been broken, but now it will be broken by the king. That's a beautiful symbol of the donkey that you may not have considered. 
but it's a more beautiful symbol of the kingship of Christ in our lives. We go from redemption to being freed to having him installed as king in our life. And I hope that is the case with both you and I this morning, church. But we move on from here. The Messiah has arrived. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road and waving their palm branches. You find that in Matthew, not here in Luke. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Remember that. They were shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, I ask you, church, when you picture the triumphal entry into Jerusalem and you hear all of the people shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They were spreading the coats on the ground as they would do with a conquering king. They were waving the palm branches, peace, safety, royalty. You are God, you, um, you are king, not God, you are king. Now, when the crowd is doing this and praising God, they're all in a joyful, robust mood, right? Yay! Have you ever thought, what does Jesus look like while he's coming in on the donkey? And before you answer that, I think he was happy. I think he had joy on his face. I think he was taking it all in and saying, this is wonderful but not for the same reason they were saying it, right? Now, if you see all the movies about Jesus Christ, he's happy, right? He's smiling. But why, church? Why would he be happy if he knew that these same people, and what do we always say? The very same people who were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, in a couple of days would be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. But is that true, church? Were all the people who were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, going to eventually be saying, crucify him, crucify him? No. There were, he has disciples. He has people everywhere. We know that there were believers in the crowd. John? Peter? James? How about Mary? Martha? How about the blind man that can now see? How about the demon-possessed person that was no longer demon-possessed? These people were all in the crowd who would not be on Friday shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. So maybe there was joy in Jesus Christ's heart as he did the triumphal entry because he knew that amongst those who did not believe in him, there were the minority that did believe in him. But I don't think that's the reason. I don't think that's the reason there was joy in his heart. You have to understand, church, the triumphal entry and the last days of Jesus Christ and the life of Jesus Christ were predetermined before the world began. This was a momentous event that could not have not happened. This was a world-changing event that saints in the past looked forward to and saints today looked back to. This was something that had to happen without any question, and it was earth-shattering. And Jesus knew that this was one piece of the puzzle, the entering in, the being welcomed incorrectly by most, the garden, the crucifixion, and the resurrection were all pieces of the puzzle that would lead to victory and triumph and peace between God and man. So he was joyful in the fact that he knew this was part of the redemption process. This was part of the world receiving its true king. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, Rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these became silent, the stones themselves would cry out. The stones themselves would cry out. Creation itself would cry out. Why, church? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory 
of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Church, creation itself is waiting for the revealing of the King of kings and Lord of lords. The stones themselves would cry out because not only are we waiting with groans, not only are we waiting to be redeemed and have these bodies of decay renewed, but the creation itself is waiting for all this to come to fruition. The earth itself groans waiting for the king to be on his throne. And if people's tongues were silent, the earth itself would say, he is king. He is God, he is Redeemer, he is our Lord. And all things from the beginning to the end will be accomplished. So the triumphal entry truly was a triumph. It was a triumph to the completion. It was a triumph that would head to the resurrection. And then church, the next step after the resurrection is the renewing of your body and mine in heaven with our King. That is the ultimate consummation of all things. But it all started back there. It all started back there. But there was sadness mixed with the joy of the day. Matthew 23, as he describes this part of the triumphal entry, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. What beautiful language there, church, that we've said many times, and I hope it starts to develop a picture that Jesus Christ wanted to take humanity under his wings like a mother hen to keep them warm, to love us, to keep us a part of him, and to let us know that we are loved the way a hen gathers her chicks, and you were unwilling Behold, your house is being left desolate, for I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Church, remember something I asked you to remember just a few slides ago? I asked you to remember that very phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What were they crying when Jesus came into Jerusalem? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But Jesus cries and says, for I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he. But Lord, we were just saying that. You had no idea what you were saying. You want a conquering king who can throw off Rome, but that's not why I'm here. You will not see me again until you realize why I'm coming, why I came, why I'm coming back. It is to save your souls from sin, death, and hell. And until you understand that, and until you cry out from your heart, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, nothing else matters until your heart changes and you see who I am. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visit visitation. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls, they will leave one stone, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus was grieved because the people who he came to did not recognize the time of the visitation of the Messiah. They did not recognize when the Messiah was coming and all of the word of God was given to them to prepare them for the coming, even to the point of saying he will ride into Jerusalem on the fall of a donkey. But even the book of Daniel specifically told them exactly when the king of kings and lord of lords would arrive on the scene, but they didn't see it. And in the book of Psalms, it showed how he would die, but they, they wouldn't see it because they didn't want to see it. And he says, you must recognize the time of my coming if you are to take part in salvation. And church, before we take the table this morning, my challenge to you is, do you recognize 
is coming. What do you mean by that? Well, he's coming again, church. There's a second coming. When he comes, will he have a tear in his eye and say, why didn't you recognize the time of my second coming? Why weren't you ready? Didn't you read my word? Didn't you look around and see the signs of the times? Why aren't you ready? Will that be our, our, our plague church that we're stuck with, that when he comes a second time, that we'll be building our houses and filling them with good things, and we won't have looked around and say, the Lord is nigh? The teaching of the Bible, church, is that we should be ready for the Lord's return at any time. Today, now, in the wink of an eye, he could return. But I got to tell you, church, we should see the signs. We should look around and say there are things that have happened today that could not have happened 50 years ago. But church, whether it's 10, 20, or 100 years, we must be prepared for his coming. How do we do that? If there's anyone in here this morning who is unsaved, who has not put their faith in Jesus Christ and made him king of kings and lord of lords, that is the first thing you need to do to prepare for his second coming. If you are lost and dead in your sins, meaning that you do bad things and you can't please a holy God because he is perfect, we are imperfect, that means you have a problem. And the only one who could solve that problem was Jesus Christ who came triumphantly into Jerusalem as the Lamb of God, to die for our sins so that we could have peace between man and God. How, John? Because when Jesus Christ died, he took on the sins of the world, he paid for them. Now we must come to him and say, I want you to save me. You own all of my sin. You paid for it. Now wash me with your blood. Cover me with your righteousness. Put on a robe of white on me that you paid for and let me dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let me be prepared for your coming by being cleansed by your blood. Church, that is how you prepare for the coming of Jesus Christ. And for those of you who have done that, live your life for him. If he wants your donkey, give him your donkey. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Lord, help us to be prepared for your triumphal return. We wait for it. We long for it. May it come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor John's going to come forward and lead us in communion. It's a privilege to be able to lead in remembering uh, the Lord's sacrifice this week especially. As we take communion, it's for those who have put their hope and trust in the salvation that Jesus provided on the cross. And uh, so we want to uh, just uh, at this point focus on the fact that uh, Jesus died on the cross for us. And what I'd like to do once, once the men are, are down here and ready to serve, I just want to read the account of the crucifixion from the Gospel of John. Then Pilate turned Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus away, carrying the cross by himself. He went to the place, the place called the skull, in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they nailed him to the cross. Two others were crucified with him, one on either side, with Jesus between them. And Pilate posted a sign on the cross that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and the sign was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek so that many people could read it. Then the leading priests objected and said to Pilate, change it from saying king of the Jews to he said I am the king of the Jews. Pilate replied, no, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they divided his clothes among the four of them. They also took his robe, but it was seamless woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said, rather than tearing it apart, let's throw dice for it. This fulfilled the scripture that says, they divided my garments among themselves and threw dice for my clothing. So that is what they did. Standing near the cross were Jesus' mother 
and his mother's sister, Mary, wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. Jesus knew that his mission was now fulfilled. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put it on hyssop branch, and held it up to his lips. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. For in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them and entrusting us with the message of reconciliation. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God.
when we take this when we hold it when we look into it and we eat it we are remembering the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross that he died in your place and in mine Father, we thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for giving yourself the ultimate gift just so that we could have fellowship with the Father. Lord, you have glorified yourself through the sacrifice and now we glory in the sacrifice as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's eat.
For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Jesus Christ when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. And so what we have here is a remembrance of Jesus Christ shedding his blood. Jesus himself said that this blood is the new covenant in his blood for the forgiveness of sins. That when Jesus Christ shed his blood, he offered forgiveness to all who would put faith in his sacrifice. So if you've put faith in his sacrifice this morning, give thanks in your heart as we drink this together because your sins have been forgiven. Let's drink. Amen. Let's stand together. This Friday night, we'll be spending the entire service celebrating and focusing on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We'd love to invite you back to that at 7 p.m. at what we're calling a tenebrae service. And uh, we look forward to, to you being here to participate, to just get your heart with the Lord and focusing on, on what he has done for each one of us. And so now I want to just send you out that as you go, you go in the name of Jesus and you go because he has forgiven your sins so you can go in joy now. Amen.